Thanks so much for that. And I actually uh, had the chance to hear Deborah for the first time uh, last fall at a Drug Policy Alliance conference. So I was, I was impressed with her then and equally impressed today. Um, so at this point, we are going to move to questions. We have some time. Uh, and, or if you want to ask a question, you'll have to be unmuted. So you would hit star one on your phone. Um, and when you come up on the list, we'll be able to unmute you for a question. And since I know that takes a minute, I'm going to take this opportunity to also let you know that if you're interested in this kind of dialogue and uh, looking at these issues from the various aspects, whether it's academic, legal, from a community perspective and a, an individual impact perspective, we will actually be having our membership meeting, our Rights Working Group membership meeting, uh, November 12th and 13th in Seattle, Washington. Uh, it will include a number of things, including a speak out by local community members about racial profiling happening uh, in not just in Washington, but in the Northwest. Uh, you can register on our website, rightsworkinggroup.org. It's a, it should be right on our homepage. You can click through. I will let you know that Wednesday, this upcoming Wednesday, the 19th, is the deadline for early registration fees, uh, discounted early registration prices, as well as to apply for travel scholarships. So if you're interested, I uh, encourage you to uh, go on the website and register soon. I, think, I see that we have one question, so we are, and I apologize, we're not the best at this technology, so we are working to unmute you, so you can go ahead and ask your Please go ahead. Hi, uh, this is uh, Hamid Khan from Los Angeles, and I'm with the Stop LAPD Spine Coalition. Um, just a quick comment and a question, um, and thank you all for, for organizing this. This has been very, very informative. Um, uh, and I, I really appreciate all the comments, and particularly uh, Professor Imani's comment about, uh, you know, that rather than the conversation to taking it to the legitimacy of these policies, I think we need to be looking at the human impact and uh, how uh, our bodies and people are constantly being criminalized. The question I had was uh, particularly about the policy of uh, the Suspicious Activity Reporting Initiative that on one hand Congress passed a law in 2004 uh, mandating uh, Homeland Security to create an information sharing environment which was followed by the National Suspicious Activity Reporting Initiative uh, filing of SARS which has now uh, taken on a lot of significance where uh, police officers and uh, communities are being encouraged to call upon uh, and filing reports based on observed behavior. So we're kind of entering into this whole language which is completely speculative in nature. So I just wanted to see if uh, Professor Imani, if you had a comment on that where uh, we've kind of entered this age of predictive policing, which is now based on speculation where reports are filed, uh, files are being opened, people are being investigated, uh, and then their information is being shared by, through fusion centers with every other agency in the country on, on, on the basis of just engaging in daily activity like taking a photograph, using a video camera, using binoculars, drawing diagrams, walking into an office and asking about hours of operation, and on and on. So just thought I'll see what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's incredibly alarming, particularly because you are not a ma made aware um, of of the filings, right? So that there's this, po I guess the law says that they can't be disclosed, and yet it's sort of it's another dimension of the surveillance state and 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 it's taking place without due process and i think that's a big i mean this this the concept that there's sort of that national security is supposed to trump due process um is is part as in part and parcel of both the kind of hysterical reaction 
um, in the aftermath, this sort of hysterical reaction that goes far above and beyond and also functions to extend what we what was already a, a deeply problematic set of practices of racial profiling in the post you know in the post 9/11 context um but i think that is equally um concerning is that SAR is not part of a public conversation um so it's both that it's taking place but it's also not part of a popular consciousness as as far i mean in at least in in my experience of you know of media um, in general, I mean, there are some newspapers that, that have coverage of it, but it's not. Um, so I, I, I guess that's not really saying much beyond. Um, I agree with your um, with your concern about this as sort of yet another level in which we're going, um, which the state is going. Um, that that is really pernicious. Thank you. Great, thank you. Uh, we're going to go to our next question. So we will unmute your line, and you can go ahead. Yeah. Hi, this is Keith, Russian Communications Manager, Rights Working Group. I have a question for Deborah. Um, for those of us that aren't in New York and aren't aren't able to stay on top of everything everything that's going on with stop and frisk, I was wondering where things are with the with the bill that's moving forward and with the advocacy to end it. Because I know there's the um, the class action lawsuit, but I'm just kind of wondering, like, what are the chances of actually passing a bill to end this practice? Well, I think that, you know, there's – so the, are you talking about the bill that Governor Cuomo proposed? No, the bill in the in the city itself, the, the, the bill that's supposed to – that council that's supposed to go before – or actually in council, in city council. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, where, I, the, where the state bill is. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem to me with stop and frisk is that you have a practice that the police have used and used in cities all over the country. Stop and frisk is not unique to New York. It's a common police practice that's employed by police departments everywhere. And that they will tell you, if you talk to seasoned officers, they'll tell you that the way that stop and frisk used to work was that it was something that police would use for people that they had identified in the community that already had criminal records that they thought were likely to be carrying weapons. The main purpose of stop and frisk initially was as a way of keeping guns off the street. And so the purpose of stopping and frisking the person was to find out if they had a gun um, and if so, to, um, for that to be an arrest, a basis for an arrest, and that if you were doing it that on a regular basis, that it would deter people from actually carrying guns because New York has very strict gun laws and other cities employ it for the same purpose. But during the 1990s, when the city went to a um, quote-unquote um, quality of life and very much CompStat-oriented model of policing that where numbers were the thriving factor behind what police, police did, stop and frisk then became a different kind of practice altogether because it now became the vehicle by which police would be able to make the numbers of the quotas that they were expected to make for making a certain number of arrests, for finding a certain number of guns, etc. And because of the way in which it was now being used aggressively to help people have their stats, it became more and more of a practice that was targeted against poor people because they were the only group of people who were powerless to actually fight against it. And so I think that 
um, something that started out as a legitimate police practice that has some legitimate basis for crime prevention has now become a justification or a smokescreen for racial profiling that not only is something that's violative of people's civil liberties, but it's also quite ineffective as a crime-fighting tool. And more and more police are speaking out against it, not just because of the impact on the community, but also because they feel that it actually keeps them from being able to go after the types of crime that they really became policemen to pursue. And this is uh, Fahad from Drum. Uh, I can speak briefly to the, the bills. Um, there's four bills that are currently pending in the New York City uh, City Council. Um, the first, uh, and there's sort of joint efforts taking place between the folks that came together around stop and frisk issues and the folks that came together around the Muslim surveillance issues. Three bills, but the first uh, were... Um, there's one bill that would essentially be a local version of the N-Racial Profiling Act, uh, which sort of prohibit all forms of profiling on the basis of housing status, race, gender, uh, occupation, uh, sexuality, orientation. Um, and, and that seems to be the strongest bill so far. There's a second bill that is on um, uh, the police need to get consent before they engage in a search. Uh, so kind of like a Miranda warning, similarly, that, you know, you're, you don't have to be searched, you have a right to refuse search, um, and then getting consent, uh, documented consent. And a third one about uh, police presenting ID, uh, that they identify themselves, say why they're stopping someone, and then when they're done, giving a business card uh, to a person so that there's a name uh, known of the officer. A lot of sort of the... Uh, uh, violations that take place or nobody knows what to do because they don't even know who the officer was. And, you know, there's a well-established pattern of uh, New York City police officers covering up their badges if somebody tries to ask any questions. And then the fourth bill, which is coming out of the Muslim surveillance issues, um, which the other communities have also signed on to, is a inspector general to create an inspector general over the NYPD. Uh, at this point, you know, we're still trying to figure out where all the bills are, the um, racial profiling bill seems to have the most resonance, um, uh, but we're trying to make sure that we kind of can keep all the bills together and move them forward as a package. Um, and if people are interested in getting involved in local campaigns, please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for that analysis, Fahad. We have uh, one last question that we're going to go to now. Great. Uh Hi, this is um, Everett Thompson, field director of the Rice Working Group. Um, first, I just want to say thank you all for your strength and your story, uh, or your reality and sharing with us. I was so excited listening to each and every one. And I guess my question is, um, we know that racial profiling and the things and stopping frisk is not uh, just in New York, but it's across the country. Um, is there one, is, if you could kind of like give us one tidbit or a lesson learned or a word of encouragement or wisdom that could help us kind of push against the grain and continue to fight racial profiling that we can kind of take back with us to, uh, to help us do our work. Thank you. Who wants to go first? I leave it to you all. <laughs> well, um, this is me, Deborah um, Small. Um, what I would say is a couple of things. One is that... Um, the, to me, the biggest problem with racial profiling is that it's a substitute for effective crime fighting, you know, and a very poor substitute at that. And so to the degree that 
people and communities actually care about um, public safety and um, the way in which resources are used, I think that they really need to demand that this practice be ended because it actually represents a gross misallocation of resources that has very little positive value and causes real harm. So that's the first thing. Excuse me. The second thing is that um, I've often thought that we need to have the same type of approach towards racial profiling that people had towards civil rights abuses in the 50s and 60s, where you actually had well-meaning, righteous white people who didn't just watch black people's rights be violated, but they actually participated. So my dream campaign is one that I call Frisk Me Too, because more and more, you know, there are, because of gentrification, there are lots of affluent people, there are lots of white people in the communities where these things are happening, and they see them happening every day, and they just watch. For me, my dream campaign would be one where people stop being observed and they actually said to the police that if you're going to stop these people and frisk them, then you need to stop and frisk me too. Because what's really going on is about power and the uh, 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 manifestation of unequal power. So in the same way that we're looking to address issues of income inequality, we also need to address the issues of the inequality in the power relationship between the people and their public servants. And so for those people who really are looking to see and seek and support justice, they have to be willing, in my mind, to also put themselves on the line and not just be observers of injustice, but actually confront it in a nonviolent way, but in a way that actually forces the authority to have to deal with the disparity that they are exercising every day. If I could uh, build on uh, just that comment. Uh, this is Fahad again from Grum. Uh, you know, sort of the necessity of getting communities themselves being uh, involved and, and not just be involved, but at, at the forefront of the struggle. Uh, you know, in, in the 90s, it was a very tumultuous time in New York City. Uh, but one of the reasons that the NYPD was under so much pressure was there was mass movements uh, taking place. People were on the streets. People were talking to the media. People were speaking out. And, and it put the law uh, enforcement in, in a very defensive position to sort of be, try to be, a lot more careful and start to be more transparent. And the reason we're sort of seeing a resurge um, in sort of uh, uh, critique of NYPD in New York is because, you know, some of that's starting to, re be, to be built again. And there's a lot of involvement of people that have been affected by the NYPD, whether they're stop and frisk, whether harassment, whether it's uh, surveillance. And, and it's really those voices really need to be at the front of the movements um, and we need to have mass involvement. Um, and, and that's really the only way that we can sort of flip the dynamic of making these agencies accountable to the communities uh, rather than sort of lording over them. Thank you. I would just add, and really just as a way of echoing the, the, the points already made, but that I really think that Deborah's point about um, effective making an argument about this being an ineffective uh, policing way of policing is is incredibly important because one of the reasons that it's been hard I think to organize in lots of communities and and has, where it's been a struggle and like the way it has been more effective in New York around the question of of profiling or around the question of policing is that there are all, it is also the case that people are often frightened in their own communities and the question is that that you know how do you make it so that there is effective policing as opposed to um, over 
over-policing. And um, I think Cleveland was a great example because the response to the protests around profiling and police brutality was that then they sort of let things stopped policing it overall as opposed to finding a more more effective set of practices. So I think actually pushing this idea that let's find a way to have accountability and have community involvement in the process of deciding how do we create, you know, healthy, safe communities where everybody has their rights fully recognized. Okay, thank you. We do, I know we're running very close to the end of the hour, but we have one last question we're going to take. I appreciate all of you for hanging in there. Go ahead. Hi, hi, Jumana. Thank you. This is Lexer Kwame with the Leadership Conference. It was actually a very specific question for Fad, and I can follow up offline if it's better about specifically the the um, the first uh, racial profiling bill that you, uh, that you listed, Fad. And I think you mentioned that um, discrimination based on housing status was included. And so my question was sort of what was driving that, and what sort of responses. Um, you know, have, have been received in response to that particular category being included among the others? Um, that category specifically came out of uh, the targeting of uh, homeless communities. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so far, the, uh, the response overall to the bill has been positive, the inclusion of, uh, you know, all the various categories. Uh, we haven't seen any um, outright opposition to it. I, actually, there's there two sections of it. One was uh, homeless communities, the second was communities that live in uh, public housing, um, and, and so the uh, drafters of the bill and, and the folks behind it were really sort of keen on making sure that there's um, a protection for those two communities, and, and so far um, they've received a, a relatively positive response. Okay. Thanks for that information. Thanks to all the speakers. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I do want to echo that thanks for all of the speakers and for all of you for joining us this afternoon. Again, just a reminder, rightsworkinggroup.org, you can find information about future calls, of course, our upcoming membership meeting. We will have an agenda posted soon. It, I promise it will be very interesting. Uh, thanks again, and join us again for another membership call. Bye-bye.